Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, we're going to, uh, to start a, a series on worship today. I don't know how long it's going to go, but our first passage is going to be taken from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at the conversation between God and Moses. God and Moses. The title of the message is Worship, the Evidence of Our Freedom. Worship, the Evidence of Our Freedom. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. God speaks and says, Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people and the sons of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, and he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Lord, help us as we study. Two things I'd like to talk to you about. One, what it means to be imprisoned. And then secondly, what it means to praise. There are two things that you need to understand about the umbrella of priority that God puts over your life. One, that you are here to acknowledge him and to honor him. Two, that you are here to make sure that his will is done on the earth and represent him well. Under those two things should fall all of your life. Anything that is outside of that umbrella is your idea about how and why you need to be here and what you need to do. To honor him, to acknowledge him. And secondly, to make sure that his will is done and to represent him well in the earth. That's why you're here. God wants to make sure that you can do both of those things well. Now there are Christians that are doing them at different levels of effectiveness. He wants us to to do it at a high level. And you do not have to have a seminary degree to pull that off. You don't have to be relegated to the full-time ministry to make make that uh, really count in your life and to, to prove that somehow you're efficient at these two things. You can do it as a house mom, as a as a worker, a UPS driver. You any field of life you can fulfill these responsibilities. And God was trying to figure out, how can I get my people to the best place where they can do these things well? When he comes to Moses, the people of Israel are in Egypt, out of place. The place they were called to be was the promised land. This is the spot where God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, this is your home. To your descendants, I will give this piece of property. So to Isaac... And to Jacob was the promise made. Jacob became Israel. God changed his name. And Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And those three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all lived in the promised land until something happened. There was a famine in the land, and they were forced to 
to figure out how to redo life, then sometimes lack will prompt you to do things. Nothing wrong with it getting your attention, but you need to be very careful how you respond. Very careful. So the backdrop is this. There's a famine in the land. But 13 years prior, 14, 15 years prior, Joseph had a son uh, about whom he expressed great affection, more so than all the other boys he had. Now, this was boy number 11. He'd had 12 sons. We have one record, recorded daughter, but he probably had many more that we just don't know about. But this son was special to, to Jacob because he was born from his most favored wife. Now, ladies, I realize you get very offended with the idea that there is such a thing as a favored wife. That means that there are others, which is distasteful, and even more distasteful that they aren't favored. But circumstances didn't work out well. Jacob didn't choose this pattern of life. He was tricked into it by his future father-in-law. He wanted to marry Rachel. She was gorgeous. So gorgeous that he said, I don't have any money, Laban, because you're required to give a bride's price during that time and in that culture in order to marry your, your, your intended. And the bride's price could be analogous to an engagement ring today. Though usually, if you married, wanted to marry somebody of great stature, it would require a big rock. <laughs> this woman must have been amazing. Amazing in character and beauty. Because Jacob says, I will give you seven years of labor for her hand in marriage. So, what do you make a year? <laughs> Multiplied by seven. That's what it cost him to get her. He loved Rachel. And it says the seven years went by like a blink because of his love for her. But Laban had other things in mind. He had an, an older daughter, an older sister of Rachel named Leah. And Leah wasn't necessarily the most desirable person to marry. Nice girl. Wonderful. But she wasn't the looker like Rachel was. And so Laban, on the night that he was to give his daughter Rachel to be married to Jacob, said, uh, yeah, I got to make a switch. Didn't tell Jacob. Now, a wedding back then would last an entire week. And at the end of the week, there'd be a ceremony. But you'd have food and drink, emphasis on drink, for an entire week. And everybody would get more than happy. <laughs> By the time that the groom got to the spot, he was just out of his mind. He'd been drinking for the last seven days. Plus, the brides had a veil, and generally it was dark. They didn't have lights. They had lamps. So bride veiled, he says all of his I do's. They blow out the candles and lamps, and he consummates the marriage. Wakes up the next morning, and it's Leah, not Rachel. He's hot. Oh, he is hot. He runs to his father-in-law's tent. What have you done to me? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. I forgot. In our culture, we marry off the eldest first. So if you want Rachel, you're going to have to work another seven years. He, he did. 
And so he was kind of, kind of tricked into this polygamy. But he loved Rachel so much, he had his firstborn. When, when she had his firstborn from her, he considered Jacob did this the firstborn of all of them, even though he was number 11. And he favored this boy, gave him things. And wasn't shy about showing that he liked him better than all the others, which is really bad if you're a parent. That's really bad. Gave him a coat of many colors. Now today, we can find all kinds of colors and garments. But that's because we have large corporations that are putting together things from the periodic table and producing colors that just don't even exist in nature. But back then, there were no chemists, and nobody understood anything about a periodical table. And so you just kind of went and tried to find the prettiest thing you could find and make it. So if you had a multicolored garment, you really worked hard. In fact, in order to produce the color purple in the Mediterranean at that time, you had to go find a bunch of mollusks. Am I saying that right? Little things out in the ocean? Mollusks? Yeah, you say it better than me. <laughs> Shellfish. <laughs> but a certain kind. And that, that little shellfish, when put with the right other things, produced a purple dye. But you had to have 2,000 of them just to produce one ounce of purple dye. This is why purple became the color of royalty, because only the royal could afford it. So when a man had a multicolored garment, purple, blue, red, green, it was like a mink. Now, Daddy, why do you want to give a 13-year-old a mink? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> Secondly, this boy wore it to Safeway. Mm. <laughs> he flaunted Daddy's affection. He was just going with it. What's wrong with you, Joseph? He goes out to see his brothers because his daddy sent him on a mission. Go check on your brothers and tell me how they're doing. They're shepherding the sheep. And he walks out in his mink. <laughs> You're just asking for trouble, man. The first thing they do when they see him in that multicolored garment, they say, there's that dreamer. He had dreams about how everybody in this family is going to come and serve him. There's that dreamer. Let's kill him and be done with this. They don't kill him. They actually enslave him. Put him in a pit, sell him off to some Midianites who then sell him off as a slave into Egypt. Serves as a slave for seven years. Then he winds up from slavery in prison. Serves for another six years, probably there. And when the king has a dream, Pharaoh, the only one who can interpret it in the land is Joseph. Read the story from Genesis 37 to 50. Joseph stands up in front of the king. King tells him his dream. And the dream is about seven year, uh, animals that get fat. And then other animals that come up out of the river and eat the fat animals. And they're gaunt and, and hungry and look starved. He said, this is a dream about plenty that's coming to the land of Egypt. And yet famine is going to follow. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. May the king set up somebody who is wise enough to, to architecturally put a, a plan together so that we can provide for our people. The king said, I don't know anybody as wise as you. You're in charge. Immediately, he went from prison to palace and prime minister all in one day. Now, this is the favorite son of Joseph. Famine hit not only in Egypt, but all over the Middle East. Jacob's around with his boys. He thinks Joseph is dead because that's what his brothers or his Jacob's sons told him. That your son is dead. They brought back the very colored, very colored tunic and, said, <clears throat> and dipped it in blood and said, see wild animals attack your boy. 
He thinks he's dead. They all go to Egypt in order to find food because this is the only place where food is in the Middle East. And, jo and Joseph has done a great job of providing for everybody, the entire known world at the time. They show up. Joseph reveals himself. J J Jacob says, ah, you're alive. I'm so happy. At the same time, he's very mad at his sons for what they have done to Joseph. But Joseph then provides for his family and then says, I'm not only going to provide for you now, but why don't you just stay here? Because there are five years left on this famine. It's seven years long. And rather than you having to come back and forth, I'll provide for you in Goshen. Give you, it's a suburb of, of the capital city. And I'll give you everything you need. And because he was Joseph's daddy, he had great prominence. And everybody looked at him as a prince. And so they were provided for beautifully in Goshen. But Goshen wasn't home. It was a temporary spot place of provision during the famine. God always provides for his people in tough times in the world. Always. May not be the same kind of provision as you would desire, but you will make it through happier. If you have a great attitude, happier on the backside than when you went in. And more fulfilled, God will provide for you. Fear not. Goshen is your portion. The problem is that that's not your home. And many times we can begin to think that if God is providing, this is where I need to stay. And not realize that there's a place he's called us to that may not be the place of our provision right now. But where he's called us to is a place where his presence is, our purpose is, and his provision, not just his provision. And because we get so excited about the provision, we think God is, is in the middle of it, and many times he may not be. It might be just he is merciful. But he wants us to get all at once to have there be convergence of our purpose, his presence, and his provision in one spot. Are you listening to me? Reason being, we don't live long enough to try to get them in different spots. Man's lifespan is but a blink. God's trying to bring a whole lot of stuff together at one time so that you can do more than you could ever do if you tried to figure it out yourself. And so the promised land was the place they were supposed to be where his presence would provide and his provision would be there and they could fulfill their purpose. But Goshen was the provision. Temporary spot. 430 years later. That's a little bit longer than temporary. 400. Our nation is what? Almost 230? Something like that? We're right at coming up on 230 years of existence. That's another at least 40% longer than we've been in existence. That's a little bit longer than temporary. There are probably Hebrews that grew up not knowing anything about the story of where they were supposed to be. No sense of their destiny in the promised land. And now they had been there so long that they had become a threat to the people of Egypt. And that they had become so numerous. And the people of Egypt said, these folk are growing so populous that we got to do something to control them. We need to make them our slaves. And now the provision has become their imprisonment. You continue to stay outside of the place where God wants you to be and fulfill your purpose. You'll find the things by which he's provided in mercy. Because <laughs> provision and family, fam famine was simply mercy. It was mercy. You stay there too long, you might find yourself imprisoned. Because of your provision. And not having a bigger vision about where God wants you to be in placement purpose and in his presence this is why placement is so important this is why you need to seek the right thing not the stuff from his hand but his face you want his presence more than you want his stuff 
Because if you get his presence, you get his stuff. If you get his stuff and not his presence, it'll be a reflection of his mercy, but not of your entire purpose of why you're on the planet. Are you listening to me? Goshen became their imprisonment. And this brings us up to Moses. Therefore, now, come near. I want you to go to my people and deliver them from Egypt. They're imprisoned. And when you are imprisoned, you cannot worship as you should. When you are enslaved to the passions of your own soul, when you are in line with the ways of the world and not the ways of God, when you are still tied to the world system, yet trying to come to church thinking that somehow it's going to assuage all of your disobedience, if you just ask for forgiveness while you live in the world, it's going to be all right. Do not be deceived. You will never be able to worship as you should if you hold on to the world system. You are enslaved and therefore cannot worship God as you should. You can't serve two masters. You will either hate the one and cling to the other or despise the one and love the other. You cannot serve both. That is not an admonition to choose wrongly. Serve God with all of your heart. And try not, do not live in both worlds. My people cannot worship me there. They're going to have to worship me after they come out. Secondly, they're in the wrong location. Not just are they in bondage. I'm calling them here. Now, Mount Horeb was not in the promised land. It was in the wilderness. Yet it was the on-ramp to the promised land culturally and religiously. It was the way through which God was going to deliver them all of his promises and laws, make them a cohesive people, a a people that were tied into his covenant by, by rules and regulations that allowed them to obey him best and know him better. This would allow them the privilege of coming into the land better and not ignorant, but mindful of how they were distinct from all the other nations. Horeb was a place where they were going to begin their worship experience as a corporate people and set, set themselves apart as an identity that these folk are different than all the other people groups because they worship the God of the universe. You can't do it in Egypt. You gotta move from one location to here. Colossians 1.13 We have been translated from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You cannot worship God from the dominion of darkness. It's the wrong spot. You got to be in the right spot in the kingdom to worship him as you should. Be free from your imprisonment. And those of you who are still bound, trying to figure out how to live right, I'm begging you, get disciples. Find somebody who can share with you their victory so that you can springboard from their life into greater victory into your own. I was talking with somebody the other day, and, and, and they've heard my testimony, and, and they looked at me, and, and this, this is a young man who really tried to do right, but he's just not. And, and he, he said, now I heard you, you were a virgin before you got married, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm not. He said, and I've done it so much, I want to do it more. He just being real frank, just saying, and then he said, help me. I don't know anybody who's had victory like you. Help me. How can I get what you got? He was crying out, very sincere, not wanting to continue to live in bondage. 
Yet he had made a commitment to Christ 18 months ago, but hadn't been able to live up to it. I'm begging you, if you happen to fit in that category and you find yourself sleeping around or sleeping with one person who is not your spouse, I want you to know victory is your portion. You do not have to be bound to your lust any longer. And please do not justify your immorality by saying, well, I love him. I love her. I just really love her. I'm committed to her. We're going to get married. Well, are you yet? Because that act that you're doing is relegated biblically to the bonds of matrimony. No place else. And you cannot justify it before Almighty God on the basis of how much you love somebody. And may I say, if you really love them, you will wait. Because right now you're, you're confusing lust and love. And proving that you don't have the self-control outside of marriage to do the right thing. So what in the world makes you think you're going to have it inside marriage? If you aren't faithful to your God outside of marriage, what makes you think you're going to be faithful to God in? I'm talking to men now. Develop strength. Find out what victory feels like. Because you'll never be the worshiper you should be while you're in bondage like that. Not there. Not like that. Come out from your imprisonment. Touch not the unclean thing. And I will be a father to you and you will be a son and daughters to me. <clears throat> what it means to praise. To the exhortation to bring my people out, Moses said, <laughs> You want me? Why are you choosing me? Can't you get anybody? Why do I have to go? I've got a really good job now. I've enjoyed He's been out there 40 years. I don't know anybody in this room who has worked an occupation for 40 years. That's a long, that's a couple of careers and then retirement. He's been doing this 40 years out in the wilderness, shepherding sheep. Plus, he has no relationship to Egypt any longer. He grew up in the house of Egypt, grew up as a prince uh, under the, the care of the daughter of Pharaoh. His mama had sent him down in a basket because all the Hebrew boys were supposed to be killed, but she didn't want her killed, so she was trusting that God would care for her boy. And, and the basket wound up in, in Pharaoh's daughter's backyard while she was bathing, and she picked him up and adopted the baby. And so he was born Hebrew, but grew up Egyptian and grew up in style. I mean, he, was a, he, he grew up in the palace understood everything about the culture and was eating the finest food and understanding all the things of education that no Hebrew would ever get, woke up one day at the age of 40 and said, I know I'm Hebrew, but I'm, I'm culturally Egyptian. Maybe there's something God is trying to do because he saw his brothers in bondage. He said, maybe he wants to use me as a, as a deliverer for my people. And he goes out to find out how his people are doing. And he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up a Hebrew slave. And he takes the Egyptian taskmaster, knocks him out, kills him, buries him in the dirt. And he thinks, oh, I'm on my way now. Oh, the Israelites will, will gravitate to me and, and they'll, they'll realize my influence and, and the position that I've got can really be used in their favor. Goes out the next day. A few days later, sees two, two, two Israelites fighting. Says, wait, 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 stop. You all are brothers. You shouldn't be doing that. The, the Israelites say to Moses, oh, you're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Realizing he incurred no favor by his act. And now the Israelites didn't regard him as anything but a traitor and somebody never to be trusted. And now he had become odious in the eyes of the Egyptians. He realized, I don't have a friend here. And now he's on the run. Egypt wants him, dead or alive. They don't care. And so he's running. He runs out to the wilderness. And he finds out in the wilderness this woman who is a shepherdess, caring for her father's sheep named Zipporah. 
and, and, and she's getting ready to water her sheep, get them watered. And then somebody comes and vies for the spot, some odious, ill-mannered other shepherd, and not treating her with any kind of chivalry at all, moves her aside and, and threatens to let his sheep be watered before hers. Moses sees what's going on. He takes his staff and just whoops up on this boy. Really, really gallant. I mean, just amazing. And then Zipporah says, hmm. <laughs> takes her to a daddy. Says, this man helped us when there were some others coming. He got him away and, and, and we were able and... and Sure enough, they're married. And he's been out there now caring for sheep for 40 years. 40 years. And he sees his burning bush one day caring for sheep. But the bush isn't being consumed. He said, what is this? And all of a sudden, the bush starts talking to him. I'm convinced that God had tried to talk to Moses a long time before the burning bush. Because everything up to that point, had, all of God's communication had been natural. There hadn't been any sign, no supernatural moment, no spectacular pinnacle sense of, of you know, lightning coming or the heavens opening or, or it, it, nothing. Just God told Noah, build me a boat. God told Abram, go to the land from which I'm telling you to the land I'm telling you to go to. But with Moses, he had to use a burning bush. Why? I think because Moses wasn't listening. If God has to use the supernatural to get to you, because you ain't listening. He's tried to communicate to you for a long time. If there's anything that he's using that's spectacular in its orientation, it's generally because you're deaf. You've been resistant to his will. It says Moses turned aside to see this thing. And God spoke from the bush. And it was one of these, oh man, he got me. You want me to go? Why me? Am I that important? Well, no, not really. In fact, he says, why do I have to go? Who am I that I should go? God doesn't even answer the question. Hear me. You're important, but you're not that important. I realize that God loves you and cares for you deeply, but it's not like he's going to counsel with you about what he does. He didn't ask your opinion about how to make the world and the universe. It's not like he needs your help. If he asks you to participate, it's because he wants to do more than get your strength. He's trying to build something on the inside of you and give you a sense of purpose and allow for something to be done between you and him that could not be done if he did it by himself. Though if he did it by himself, he could do it better than he did it, than if he'd done it with you. God wants to use you that relationship might be. Moses, no, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't want to say it, but no, I don't need you. I mean, think about it. What did Moses actually do when he went to Egypt? Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And it said that he wouldn't even talk, that Aaron was his voice piece. So it's one of these. Tell him, let my people go. <laughs> what did he do? God turned the water to blood. God turned the sun off for three days. God brought the plague. Moses, no, I really don't need you. I really, I really don't need you. But I want to use you. 
told this story before. My baby girl come. My, my wife had me set up this thing over the toilet shelf thing. And, and I, the way you can make a brother like me happy is when you buy stuff on the, on the honeydew list, that if it says no assembly required, that makes me happy. I can just pull it out of the box and put it in the corner. This wasn't that. So I rely on God. And I'm mechanically challenged. Every time I put something together, there are parts left over, and that is not good. And so I'm, I'm doing this thing. And my daughter comes in, who's in four, Brooke. And she comes in as I'm putting it together. And it says 20 minutes in the directions. It's going to take me 40. And so I realize. I, and Brooke says, Daddy, can I help you? And my pragmatic side says, no. If you come to help me, it's going to take me an hour to put this together. Because then I'm going to have to relate to you and talk to you and teach you how to do stuff and let you screw it in the wrong way and then me unscrew it. No, it's not going to. But my daddy said, yes. Absolutely, baby. My daddy's side kicked in, and boy, we had a great time taught the difference between a nut and a bolt and screwing in clockwise and unscrewing counterclockwise. It was an amazing time, and yes, it took us an hour. But see, more stuff got built in the shelf. You're four. You're four. You can't help God. But God wants to use you. And it might be just to say, tell them, say, let my people go. <laughs> he could use a parrot to do that. But he chose to use you because he loves you and wants to establish relationship with you within the context of mission. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And you ought to feel very valued by that. So when he says, do this for me, hurry up and say yes. yes. Moses complained, I mean the entire time. But God's response was, I'm not even going to ask you que- answer your question. I just want you to know, certainly I will be with you. Now, we understand that to be true because we understand something about good theology which represents God as being the God of the whole earth and that he's every place. He's om- omnipresent. But the the mindset of most people in Moses' day was that gods were territorial. So there would be the gods of the land of Canaan and then the gods of the land of Egypt. And gods generally didn't cross boundaries. Everybody had their own idea about who God was and he was the god of that particular area. And that wasn't even foreign to the patriarchs. Jacob running from Esau because Esau was going to kill him. Esau was his brother. He winds up at a place where he's going to go to sleep, puts a rock under his head, goes to sleep, sees a vision in the night of angels descending and ascending upon a ladder. And God speaks to him. He says, I want you to come back here because this is your home. He knew he was going to go someplace, but he said, this is where I've called you to be, right here. And he called that place the house of God because he said, surely God is here. He didn't, I don't know if he knew God was anyplace else but there. And that he called that the house of God. So the idea that God was every place and God of gods, God of the entire earth, was still forming in the minds of people. This is what he had to tell Abram when he told Abram, leave your land. I am God almighty. I'm not just God. I am God almighty. I'm not to be relegated as one of the other gods that other people worship. I am the God of the entire earth. And so this idea needed to be, needed to be, 
cultivated in the minds of people on a regular basis. My point is this. God told Moses, I'm mobile. I'm not located. I'm not, I'm not relegated to this spot. I'm going with you. Now, it was frightening for Moses to think when I go to, to Pharaoh that God was staying there. <laughs> Wait a minute. You, you're in this burning bush. You stand here. You sending me over there. I don't have an army. I have no protection. I ain't got no, Are you kidding me? It's not so much important to find out who you are as to know who is going with you. Who is with you? I will be with you. I'm mobile. My power that you see now is going to be reflected there. Oh, 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 oh. even though Moses still didn't want to go, it changed all of his mindset with respect to how this was going to happen. And God said this. This will be a sign to you that when you deliver the people, you will come back here and they will worship God. All of you will worship God. What that said to Moses was this. Remember, he, we, we know the end of the story. This was all brand new to him. He'd never seen a miracle. He'd never heard the voice of God. He was a novice in every way. Clueless. You'll come back here and you'll worship God. So what that said to Moses was, oh, I ain't going to die. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to lead these people out. And you're going to be here waiting for me. This is our meeting spot. And you're going to be there with me there. And you're going to be back here when I get here. Even though I don't want to go, I get it. And there's something about being extricated from your place of, of imprisonment and bondage that should inspire a worship experience unlike you've ever had. Because you can't worship God in your bondage. The privilege of the church Please listen. The privilege of the church is that we get to communicate with him. When we have issues, we can pray and talk to our father. The world just has to figure it out. Yet we hardly ever use the privilege. We don't, we don't exercise our worship experience in, in making wherever we are a sanctuary of his presence. But it's one of the privileges of being free from your imprisonment and your bondage is that you get to worship God because you couldn't do it when you were in bondage. And it is a reflection that you are free. So the more you, you, you worship, not just talking about this moment where we have an hour on a Sunday morning, but the more you integrate his will into your life on Monday and Tuesday and, and letting your heart worship by obedience, the more you worship the more you see his presence and his provision begin to come into your life in such a way that you accentuate your purpose and people begin to be changed as a result of your presence. Are you listening to me? When you experience your freedom, your worship is evidence of it. If you aren't worshiping, you probably have some things from which you still need to be free.